everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bothell Amplified. Pastor Joe here. Uh, this week, we launched a quick two-week series uh, called Creating the World Anew and looking at new ways in which we might experience and live into the world so that we can be people of love and of peace and of justice. Uh, this week, preaching from 1 Corinthians, uh, check out the sermon here. Now, concerning food, sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offering to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are things and through him we exist. It is not, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So, by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed. But when you thus sin against brothers and sisters and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never again eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Holy words for God's people. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm one of the three pastoral interns here, um, and I've had the privilege of being able to serve this community for such a long time. Uh, since last April, actually. So it's almost been a year, and it's been a pleasure to be here. Um, last night, I was looking at, does, do you know what the Enneagram is? Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> uh, we had a brief conversation this morning. The Enneagram, in a way, it's kind of like a personality test. It's sort of like the Myers-Briggs uh, personality test. Um, and it, but in it, it has some, like, there's nine different types of, like, types that you can be. And, yeah, nine is not that many to accommodate all the different types of personalities and complexities that we have of people in this world. But I was reading it, and it's, like, eerily on point for who I am. For example, it called out that I, like, neatly fold my socks and place them in an orderly fashion. I don't know how <laughs> they know that about me. Um... And the other also one that was also kind of on point, which uh, it used the words, can sometimes exude a prickly attitude. And 
you may have not seen that about me, but I know that that's definitely true about myself. And I've had friends describe me like that in certain situations when I admittedly have been prickly. But since coming to this church, um, I feel that I have a safe place, a safe community in which I can worship and that I can be myself. And in fact, the prickliness goes a little bit away because I have this welcoming environment in which I can participate and worship in. And so I want to say, um, and I want to welcome all of you, that no matter who you are, you are welcome and you belong. And what that means for us is that we want you to know that for exactly who God created you to be, you're welcome and you belong. We know that there are places where that's not true, especially in places of worship, where people have been marginalized, pushed out, ostracized, and called names. And if that has been your experience, we apologize and we want to do better. We hope that you know that at Bothell UMC, you are welcome and you belong. If you are gay and lesbian, transgender, bisexual, or questioning, know that you are welcome and that you belong. If you are black, brown, indigenous, or if you have been discriminated against because of the color of your skin, know that you are welcome and that you belong. If you are single, divorced, partnered, separated, or widowed, know that you are welcome and you belong. If you're homeless, houseless, or you find yourself in lower economic brackets of our community, with all of your bodily complexities, you were created as an integral part of God's good design. And so know that you are welcome and know that you belong. Amen. So I've been thinking a lot about this concept of knowledge as I was preparing for this sermon, knowledge. And I was remembering a phrase that I seem to have heard over and over in what seems to be in very random situations. I remember having to redo my math homework in middle school, even though I had gotten all the answers right. It wasn't enough that I knew X equals 47, I had to show my work on how I got there because my teacher said that knowledge is power. I remember hanging out with my dad watching tennis. I had played in high school. He was one of my coaches. And when we were watching tennis, he didn't stop being one of my coaches. Uh, did you see how that player did this? Or did you see how this player did that? And when I asked him who he was rooting for, he said both because there are things to learn from both, because knowledge is power. Uh, when we were living in New Jersey, I remember the check engine light came on in my car, and so I took it into the mechanic. Uh, I stood there while they were checking me in, and he started talking to me as if I knew cars. I don't. So he said to me, well, there's usually a couple things that we check for with this uh, light. He started to list them, and nodded along as if, I knew what he was talking about. I didn't. But I felt like I should respond. And so I blurted out, it's the spark plugs. He looked at me. I looked at him. He continued looking at me. <laughs> I said, yeah, sorry. I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, he laughed it off, and he turned to go work on the car, and I heard him muttering louder than he needed to, well, they do say knowledge is power. <laughs> Even as a parent, 
sometimes watch my kids, they're, they're putting together uh, a new Lego set, or, or my son is, is solving a Rubik's Cube, and, I, and I'm, I'm watching them with this unexplainable growing pride in my heart as they have the instructions in front of them as they are working to figure it out. And then I'll hear all the times when it was impressed on me, and now I want to impress on them knowledge is power. On one hand, I want to celebrate this. My parents are immigrants, and for them, who came to America for a better life than the one they had known, knowledge was, in fact, power. Knowing the language, knowing the laws and the cultural norms, knowing how to count money, knowing how to enroll your kids into public schools, how to find your way around, how to pay the bills. To them and the immigrants of that generation, knowledge absolutely is power. And they wanted the best life for us, so they passed that to us. What I wonder is what happens when this drive for knowledge consumes one's life. What happens when this drive for knowledge consumes one's life? I I did some research this week, uh, and the phrase knowledge is power is attributed to the philosopher Francis Bacon in 1597. Uh, It's rooted in the old Sanskrit language, a proverb from that language. It says, there is no comparison between a king and a scholar, as a king is celebrated only in his country, whereas a scholar is celebrated everywhere. Yeah. See, during Bacon's life, it's in uh, late 1500s, early 1600s, there, there was this rising interest in the scientific world to explore the world scientifically. This new generation of thinkers and scientists, they rejected the religious and philosophical approach to examining reality only by pure reason. They they believed that this method didn't bring accurate knowledge. It, It was too speculative. And so they argued that the true knowledge was born using our experiences along with the methods of observation and experimentation. And a side note, this is very similar to John Wesley's approach. He is writing about 150 years later than that. And John Wesley, the founder of United Methodism, he, he connects the ways in which we understand God and relate to God as studying Scripture with connecting to the traditions of the past, the reason and observations of our world today, and then one's own experiences. The, we call this the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and you can hear more about this in our Methodist 101 class coming on later this spring. Uh, but back to Bacon, uh, which is a phrase I never thought I would say in a sermon. Uh, Francis Bacon, he, he offered this new approach, right, to acquiring knowledge that emphasized observation and experimentation Uh, inductive reasoning. He believed that scientific knowledge should be based on evidence rather than relying solely on uh, the tradition and authority or abstract reasoning. And this led him to advocate for modern science, what we know today, and then to eventually proclaim that knowledge is indeed power. He uh, truly believed that acquiring knowledge had the potential to empower individuals and societies. And I agree. I agree. 
But what happens when knowledge is power over? And this is what Paul's writing about in our text. Uh, the city of Corinth, it, it's a bustling cosmopolitan city. It, it attracts people from all over the Mediterranean region. And we know he was writing re- around the mid-50s CE. Uh, and it was a time when Corinth was the center of trade. It, it was a, a city that was situated as a port for those who traveled by road and by sea. They were docking at the city's seaports. And Paul, he, he, he founded this church. He, he established this community uh, before he left about a year and a half later to go start other churches. And as he leaves, this church in Corinth is growing. It's booming. But that seemed to be short-lived. See, this letter, this is at least their third correspondence back and forth. And though the earlier letters didn't survive, we can assume that based on Paul's Uh, side of the conversation, the previous letters were full of questions and unresolved issues. This once growing church is now fighting. There there are factions that are visible. There are divisions based on knowledge and education, on economic status, on class, and it leads to excluding each other from church, from communion. These Divisions. This is one example that Paul's getting at. See, Corinth, again, being that bustling cosmopolitan city, attracts different people from different parts of the Mediterranean, different people with different faiths and different religions. And in such a city with so many religions, there are rituals, especially ones that include animal sacrifices. And so some of the other religions, we might call it even these pagan religions, they they sacrifice the animals in a ritual of worship, and then they sell the extra meat in the market. And the question we're trying to deal with is, as a Christ believer living in Corinth, can one buy and eat that meat? That's the question at hand. And here's what Paul argues. He says, look, All y'all who are Christ followers of Corinth, you know and I know that there are no other gods. We know of our God. So who cares? Who cares if the meat was offered to some idol or some other god? Since they're not real, we can eat. However, not everyone else knows that. So if someone who is trying to still figure this faith thing out, Perhaps it's someone new to the faith or someone who had just converted from one of those pagan religions to ours. When you have someone like that and they see you eating the food that was offered to an idol, don't you think that they might think it's okay to sacrifice food to the idols and then to eat it? And that's breaking the first two commandments, right? You should have no other gods before me. And we don't make idols. I need to tell you that I I really don't like this text. At the core, it's great, okay? And actually, the sermon can end here like this. Uh, We can say, as a way of caring for the community, be mindful of how you act so that you don't cause others to mess up in their relationship with God. That could be the end of the sermon. It's not, so hold on. 
for Paul and in this text, that framing uh, plays out like this. Be mindful of what you eat so that you don't cause others to mess up in their relationship with God. For some of us, it might be be mindful of what language we use or be mindful of what beverages we consume or be mindful of what rituals we participate in. And yeah, these are easier said than done, but I can get on board with that, and I hope you can too. The problem for me is this. Who gets to decide what stumbling looks like? Who gets to decide what a messed up relationship with God looks like? To this day, there's an anecdote that uh, says that the early missionaries, when they first arrived in a foreign, read, non-Western land. Uh, They would arrive with a Bible in one hand and a gun in the other. Here's how you get to heaven, they said. They said, follow everything we tell you about in this book, but if you don't, do you know how many cultures and traditions and rituals have been erased due to this good work of missionaries. You may have never seen or heard of bread and wine before, but this is the only way to experience the body of Christ and the cup of grace. Your food is no good. You can't speak or read in your language anymore because Latin... Is the language of God. You can't bow to your deceased ancestors at their graves, whether you think it's worship or not, because Scripture says that every knee will bow to Jesus alone. And also, don't make your dead ancestors into idols, which apparently is different than a saint. Glad you laughed at that. Maybe you can think of some examples today. Don't listen to that kind of music. Don't watch that kind of movie. Ban those books. Vote in a specific way. Have a stance on that issue that aligns with mine. Behave a certain way in church. There's the real Lord's Prayer and everything else. Be the right kind of Christian Here's the challenge. As we live into our identities as followers of Jesus, we're not called to do things in a specified, correct way. We're not robots programmed to follow what is Christian. We are called to live in community, to care for one another, to lift each other up to celebrate the fullness of one's unique identity and the identity of each other's cultures. Sometimes that does mean calling each other out when we see our siblings going down an unhealthy path. Other times it means messing up and asking for forgiveness again and again. We're called to learn together, to grow together. The journey alongside one another, even in our differences. I'm right and you're wrong. I'm okay with that. 
Because it leads us into conversation. Tell me why. What about your experiences has led you to land here? What are your experiences that helped you reach that conclusion? I'm right, you're wrong. Let's talk about it. I'm right and you're evil? We may not say those words, but if we mean what we actually mean, I'm right and you're evil. I'm right and your way of belief will get you not to heaven. I'm right and what you believe is not the true way of living as a Christian. I'm right and your stances is not the Christ way. That's a different conversation. Because instead of allowing for us to share where we've come from, we cut that person off and we condemn them to a place where we think they deserve. We lose grace. We lose love. And we lose the rootedness of community that allows for us to share in this life together. That's what we're called to do to live in community together. And we get the joy and privilege of doing that. Maybe we can do that with some love. Maybe we can be curious. Maybe we can be open to sharing. Maybe we can be open to listening. Maybe we can decide that we don't know everything there is to know. And perhaps there's a space for us to be humble, and a space for us to care for one another in ways that lifts each other up. Amen? Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this time together. We give you thanks for the ways in which you call us into community with our unique backgrounds and experiences, with our unique gifts and talents, with our identities. We give you thanks that we are not all alike. We pray that as we live into the beauty of your diversity, that we would care for one another, that we would love one another, that we would show grace to one another, and that we would claim and proclaim that you are God and we are not. To help us to live faithfully together in the ways that lifts each other up as we draw closer to you. It's in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen. All right, so that was our first sermon from this series, Creating the World Anew. Uh, Next week, we continue by turning to the book of Isaiah. Uh, Check us out next week as we continue this series. In the meantime, lots of exciting things happening in the life of the church. So make sure you do check out our website, bothelumc.org. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you soon.